Morning. I'm sure most of you probably have seen the Despicable Me. Remember that? There's that scene where he has an epiphany, he goes, light bulb. When I was watching Megan, I kind of had a light bulb. I thought I could come out and preach with a puppet sometime. Wouldn't that be fun? You can say all sorts of things as a puppet, like, repent sinners, you know, something like that, or you are the aroma of Christ. I mean, there's all sorts of things you could do with a puppet, but we won't, we won't do that this morning. Um, I'm not sure that would work. It's not in my wheelhouse. So, But we are going to start today with uh, concluding our sermon series, Meals with a Master. And uh, if you haven't been with us before, what we've been doing is journeying through the gospel of Luke and pulling out stories. It's about 20 percent of Luke, in fact, pulling out stories where Jesus uh, shares a meal with people. Maybe he breaks some bread. He has something to eat. And during the course of that interaction, Jesus then models something, teaches something, shows us something about life with Christ, a life with him, life with God. And uh, so what we've been doing is uh, each week, you probably noticed that we have this these table this is set up and there's usually a little bit of difference from week to week. And this week it looks beautiful, wonderful taste, uh, table settings and, and, and all that. But it's missing something. Can you tell me what it's missing? Food, right? Right. Food. I mean, how can you have a meal without without food? You, you go to somebody's house, you go to a restaurant, you sit down. It looks nice. But typically you expect there's going to be maybe some salad or soup. Maybe a main dish, some fruit and vegetables, and hopefully at the end you have an appetizer, or excuse me, a dessert. At the beginning, at the beginning, well, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. At the beginning, though, you want an appetizer. Okay. Um, but I don't always get an appetizer when I go out to eat because you're in a rush maybe, or you don't want to spend the extra money. Um, maybe you're grabbing fast food. You want to save room for the main dish or dessert. But when you've got the time and you've got the money and it's the right setting, a good appetizer always starts things off well. It, 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 it whets your appetite, it gets you going, it prepares you for the main course, and you, you can't wait for what's about to come. Well, today the passage that Dan just read out of Luke, the end of Luke, in fact, is sort of an appetizer. It's, it's a taste of things that are yet to come. So before we jump into what I mean by that, um, let's let's look back at last week, because what we read just a minute ago happens immediately after what we looked at last week. Last week, we looked at the first in the middle part of Luke 24, and it's a passage in the story known as the road to Emmaus. OK, remember that story? Uh, it's it's the first Easter Sunday and uh, Jesus has uh, been he's been crucified after he's been arrested. He's been buried. And earlier in Luke 24, there's two women who go to the tomb. There's some women who go to the tomb and they discover it's empty. Peter and another disciple run to the tomb to check it out. They come back and say, yeah, it's empty. And these two disciples, other disciples, are walking to Emmaus. It's about seven miles from Jerusalem. So they're walking along and they're processing the events of the past week. It began on a really high note. Jesus rides into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey. Everybody's excited, but then it begins to turn south. Um, there's some bad interactions with the Pharisees. They're out to get him. They have the last supper. Judas betrays him. So on and so forth. Jesus is arrested, tortured, crucified and buried. And then these stories are starting to float around that Jesus is, is resurrected, that the tomb is empty. But these two don't want to know, don't know what to make of it. So they're walking along the road, processing all this. And then it says that Jesus comes along and starts to walk with them and talk to them. Talk, and, and, and it says that they don't recognize him at first. And Jesus asks them what's going on and they tell him the events of the past week. And then Jesus essentially says, "Well, let's look at the scripture. 
what does the scripture have to say about what's happened? Let's put it in context. And Jesus takes them to the scripture and shows them in the prophets and the Old Testament. All these things are supposed to happen. They were predicted to happen. And then they get to the end of the walk to Emmaus. They invite him in for dinner. It says that Jesus prayed, broke bread, their eyes are opened, and they recognize him. And then he disappears. Boom, just like that. Disappears from their, from their midst. And then we pick it up here uh, in the passage in Luke 24, verse 36. So these two disciples, after Jesus disappears from their midst, they realize who he is. They realize all this talk about the scriptures. We've got to share it. So they rush back to Jerusalem, seven miles. So they probably got back sometime in the middle of the night. And we pick it up in verse 33 and 4. There they found the 11, 11 disciples. Remember, there were 12. Judas um, is dead now. He betrayed Jesus. And those with them assembled together and saying, it is true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. And the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So they're all comparing stories. The empty tomb, Jesus on the road, the broken bread, he disappears. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears in the middle of them, into this room. Now, I don't know about you, but if it was the middle of the night and we'd had a horrible week and I'd just seen someone alive that I thought was dead and all of a sudden they appeared out of nowhere, not a knock on the door, not, hey, guys, it's Jesus, let me in. He just shows up. I would have been terrified. And that's exactly how the disciples respond. They're startled. They're frightened. And it says that they think Jesus is a ghost. And then Jesus does something which I find very comforting and very encouraging. And I'm sure it was for the disciples back then, too. Jesus sees their fear. He sees their doubts. And, and, and rather than, than minimize those fears and rather than chastise them for their doubts, he addresses them and he helps them overcome them. You know, one of the things that I love about the Gospels, there's a lot of things I love about the Gospels. It shows us so much about who Christ is why he came, what he offers us. But another thing I like about the Gospels is because they're very real and honest in their portrayal of the disciples. Uh, They don't portray the disciples as these perfect believers, uh, people who have no doubts, who have all the answers, who never make mistakes, who aren't afraid, who are always the epitome and the example of of rock-solid faith. There's a lot of admirable things about them, don't get me wrong, But the scripture also showed those disciples as scared, people who run away and hide sometimes when it gets tough. They argue amongst themselves. They're selfish at times. They have prejudices. They judge other people. They are not perfect people. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many people can connect and relate with the Gospels. Because how the disciples are described, flawed, scared, selfish, doubting, well, that's how we are often, right? So it's encouraging to me to see how Jesus responds to them when they, when they aren't at their best. He doesn't reject them. He doesn't, he doesn't judge them for their fears and doubts. In fact, on the contrary, Jesus invites them to bring their doubt, to bring their fears to him, and to test him and to touch him and to see if he's real. To kind of paraphrase, Jesus says, check me out. I'm not Casper. I'm not Beetlejuice. I'm not Patrick Swayze from Ghosts. I'm flesh I'm bones, I'm real. Now, we don't have the advantage, like the disciples did, of having a flesh and blood and bones Jesus standing in front of us. We can't reach out physically and touch him. 
and check his hands and feet to look for the scars from the nails. But we can test him. We can try him out. We can seek him and try him out through prayer and through Bible study and and through reading. We can seek him, try him out through worship and serving others and giving our lives to him. We can seek him out and test him out through conversation with others who have met him and who follow him. Though we don't have a flesh and bones Jesus standing before us, we can come to Christ and we can test him, try him out to see if he's real. So if you have doubts, I encourage you today to take Jesus up on his invitation, on his offer, and try him and test him and see if he's real. I personally think there are more reasons to believe than not to believe. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to give him a shot, make it a real shot. Don't make it a token experience. Not a couple days, not a few brief prayers. Don't try to manipulate God. Go all in. Give your life to him. Pray, read the word, get involved, talk to others who follow Jesus and see what happens. My belief and experience is that you'll see that he's real. So back to Luke 24. Jesus invites them to touch him, but they're not convinced yet. So he says this in verse 41. So he asks them, do you have anything to eat? And they give him a piece of they gave him a piece of broiled fish. No long John Silver's for Jesus. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. Now, why does Jesus eat? fish in front of them. Well, ghosts don't eat, right? So he said, touch me, check me out, look at my hands and feet. I'm going to eat something in front of you. I'm not a ghost. And then to really solidify things, he then again goes back into the scriptures, just like he did on the Emmaus road. He launches into the scriptures and explains exactly why Jesus, why he came, what was supposed to happen to him. And, and now what they were called to do. You know, something we need to draw out of here is that in both cases, the Mace Road and this passage here, it really highlights and demonstrates the crucial importance of knowing and studying and learning the scriptures in matters of faith and belief and action in our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what anchors us, keeps us rooted and on the right path. So there's something else I want to show you from this story. Uh, Because as I said in the beginning with the appetizer sort of analogy, is that Jesus gives us a taste of things to come. What do I mean by that? Have you ever wondered about what heaven's going to be like? I I know I have, and I've had people ask me several times as a pastor, what's heaven going to be like? What are we going to do? What are we going to look like? What's going to happen? They have lots of questions. I do too. And I don't have all the answers. The Bible tells us a lot about heaven and what's next. But there's, there, there's much that we will not know until we get there and until Christ returns. So, but something we can pull out of this is that Jesus was definitely flesh and blood and bones. And now hear this. His resurrection body is the kind of resurrection body that we will have. Okay, the scripture tells us in, in a couple different places. In a sense, Jesus model is modeling here for us a taste of things to come by appearing in his newly resurrected body. The Bible does tell us that we will be like Jesus, that we'll have amazing bodies like his when we get to heaven, that we'll be changed, that our bodies will no longer have limitations physically. We won't get old. We won't get sick. We won't be we won't decay. Um, Hopefully we won't get overweight. We'll stay in shape all the time. Who who knows? Um, 
but we're going to have our bodies are going to be different. I don't know if we'll be able to zoom back and forth like Jesus did from place to place. That would be really cool. That'd be kind of fun. But but we our bodies are going to be different than the bodies we have here. And, and so Jesus shows up and he, he's the firstborn of the resurrection, the firstborn, it says, in in in, um, in other parts in the New Testament. And that because he is the firstborn, because he has defeated death, that we, too, who follow in Christ will be resurrected as well and have bodies like his and have life everlasting. That's an incredible thing to think about. It's a wonderful thing. It doesn't sound like we'll be floating around in heaven on clouds and sort of disembodied spirits strumming harps and singing hymns all the time. That sounds kind of tedious and boring to me. It seems like life after death is going to be much, much more than that. So Jesus is eating this fish and he tells the disciples that the life after death is much more about life eternal in a resurrection body. No wonder the disciples, it says in verse 41, still did not believe for joy and amazement. It was not until he went to the scriptures and began to open the scripture to them. They began to understand and glimpse how wonderful their future was, their calling how, how beautiful their destiny would be someday. And it transformed them from those who were scared to death into people who gave their lives as martyrs in many of their cases. Jesus then said in verse 46, This is what is written, The Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and in his name repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be announced to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, look, I'm sending you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So Jesus has explained the scripture. He has shown them that he's real, that he's alive, he's risen. And then he tells them that they're going to be commissioned to go out and tell the good news that Christ came, that we could be forgiven of our sins and we come to him in repentance and faith. But Jesus reminds them that it must begin with waiting it begins with prayer and that we are not to go forward until we have received the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of the wonder of the resurrection and of the life to come. It points us to the fact that the world and heaven will be brought together in a new kingdom and a new reality that goes back to what God intended before the fall. A place where there will not be corruption or decay or death or injustice or illness or sorrow or shame or terrorism. No more tears. Now, the same thought, the same idea that there's more to come, much better things to come, runs also through John's writings. In 1 John chapter 3, John is writing to people who have not experienced the risen Christ like he and the other disciples had. And he writes them to assure them that of what they've been told by these people is true. He says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that we did not is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Amazing thought that we'll see God in Christ face to face and we'll be like him. One day we'll see him face to face. And so when Jesus appears to the disciples here in Luke 24 and when he eats fish and when he addresses their doubts and their fears and invites them to see for themselves if he is real, 
Jesus was calling them and us forward to a, a future of joy that is too good for us to understand yet. We can't completely comprehend what is yet to come. But he gives us a, a hint, a preview, a taste of things to come. John Artberg, uh, the pastor and author, kind of puts it this way. He uses this analogy. He says, imagine you have a five-year-old child whom you love very much. Let's say your child's been sick and you're afraid you might lose her. Then the doctors tell you that all she needs is a minor operation. It's a simple one. No risk. She'll live and she'll be fine. Your joy would know no limits. But your five-year-old is scared to death. She's confused. She's dreading the operation. She's frightened by the surgeon. She doesn't know that everything's going to be okay. She cannot. She doesn't have that perspective. She doesn't have that capability to comprehend. And so you must take her fear seriously, her doubts seriously. You must let her know that you empathize. You must come alongside her and help her to, to look to the future and to be there for her. You know, really, that's the human condition, isn't it? That's what Christ does for us. We live in the now, but not yet. We, we know in part, but we don't know fully. But God does give us enough. Enough to have faith, enough to be encouraged, enough to be comforted. Enough of a taste of things to come to help us persevere. The Apostle John, again in Revelation this time, points us to what is to come. Where he says, God himself will be with them and they will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's the hope and the joy that is set before us by Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude our sermon series by taking us back to the major theme of the whole thing. And that is that Jesus Christ loves us so much that he invites us to come to him. He wants to hang out with us. He wants to do dinner with us. He invites us to come and to sit at the table and to know him as, as friends, to have a personal relationship with him to find strength and hope and peace and forgiveness as we break bread with him, to eat, to eat and feast with him forever. I want to conclude with a, one of my favorite Bible verses. I remember it as a young, as a young boy. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door and invites me in, I will come in and I will dine with him, with her. We can experience that. Not just in the future, but also today. Christ stands ready at the door of our lives, knocking. He will not force his way in. He waits for our invitation. But when we open that door and we step out in faith, he will respond. He will come in and change our lives forever. And we will experience something in this life and in the next that is beyond description. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that when we have questions, we, can, we are to go back to your word, our foundation and our rock and our source of all truth. It reveals who you are, Lord Jesus. It teaches us about God the Father and the Holy Spirit. It teaches us about the way of salvation, about your will, about what's to come. And so, Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this journey through the gospel according to Luke. And what an incredible picture 
metaphor for us that, that Luke lays out for us, that you, Lord, the maker of this universe, the creator of this world, all-powerful, that you want to break bread with us, that you want to share a meal with us, both today and forever. Thank you, Father, for that. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open as you stand and you knock, that we would invite you in. In the midst of our doubts and fears and worries, that we would take a step of faith and try you out, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would know that you're real, that you're true, that you're enough. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.